We have been in a series looking at the parables, and today we come to Luke's gospel, where he begins to pick up some of the parables. Um, We start out in Luke chapter 10. What's interesting is the last number of parables that we looked at come from Matthew's gospel, verse Uh, chapter 13, where he's giving the kingdom parables. But these parables that Luke Luke provides um, occur over the course of Jesus' ministry. There's no real rhyme or reason to them. They're not interconnected. They're not trying to prove a point altogether. Um, And so that's kind of the way we're going to take these over the next several weeks is just as one-offs. So each one is teaching something totally unique. It stands alone from the others around it. Our text comes from Luke chapter 10 verses 25 through 29. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 10 beginning at verse 25. This is the parable of the good Samaritan, the information leading up to Jesus telling that parable. Here we go, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? You may be seated. Um, So it kind of gives you a little preview before Jesus gets into this parable. As you know, we have a couple of rules. I don't think we have the rules ready for you this morning. But anyhow, we have a couple of rules when it comes to how we deal with parables. And one of the ways that we interpret the parables is to make sure we consider the context. And so knowing the story that leads, if we just took the parable that Jesus tells, we'd miss a lot of the point of this parable. And so we want to spend some time looking at this conversation that Jesus has with his expert in the law before he teaches the parable. Now, before I get into any of that, I want to remind you that out in the lobby, we've got some signups that we need uh, from folks for the coming year of ministry. Also, out there this week, uniquely this week in the coming weeks, is uh, some home group sign-ups. So if you're looking for community, which we all need community, we all need community. Without community, that sinful nature starts to bear its ugly head, right? And so we need to help keep that sinful nature at bear, and we also need that support mechanism in our lives. And so that um, home groups are a great way for you to do that. Look for the little blue sign-up sheets out there in the lobby. Check out the opportunity. opportunities that are available, and we'd love for you to be a part of one of those. All right, so let's take a look at this parable or the lead up to Jesus teaching the parable, Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. It says, let's take a look at, um, I'm just reading what I wrote there. Take a look at this together. It says, verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, the term lawyer is someone who is an expert, uh, as it says, they're an expert in the Jewish law. This is a scholar of the Jewish law. It's somebody who gets paid to interpret Jewish law. That's what we're talking about here in the first century. So this expert in the law, it says, wanted to put Jesus to the test. That is, he wanted to challenge him. He wanted to see if Jesus was up to the task. He wanted to see what Jesus' acumen was like. And so who better to do this than an expert? And so his examination begins with a question, end of verse 25. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this was a commonly debated topic in Jesus' day, whether or not there was eternal life. There was a group of Jewish people, a prominent group of Jewish people known as the Sadducees, who did not believe in the afterlife. It says in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 23, reporting about this group of people, that they say there is no resurrection. Basically, they believe that when somebody blows your candle out at the end of your life, everything fades to black and that's it. You cease to exist. Um, This 
And so Jesus goes on to prove those folks wrong later in that exchange in Matthew 22, that there indeed is an afterlife. Um, But this particular guy on this particular occasion in Luke chapter 10, that's not his concern. This expert in law agreed with Jesus that there is an afterlife. He agreed with Jesus that there is life beyond the grave and that there is a resurrection. Uh, But what this fellow wants to know is, how do I get there? Uh, That's a preoccupying concern of a lot of Jewish people in Jesus' day, just as it might be for us today. Now, that may seem like um, a perfectly legitimate and sincere question, and in most circles it would be. However, in this particular occasion, talking to this particular guy, uh, it's not quite so uh, cut and dry. And so if you skip on down to verse 29, what you see there in verse 29 is this fella, uh, or the, the scriptures communicating what's going on inside this guy's head, that he believes he can earn eternal life. That's what he thinks. He thinks, I can earn it. Verse 29 says that the expert desiring to justify himself. That is, he wasn't interested in going to the temple to make any atonement for sins because he didn't think he had any sins. He thought he was living life at the high bar and everything was just hunky-dory for him. He was not interested in confession. He had no plans of humbling himself before a holy God or repenting of his shortcomings. Instead, he wanted to build up his resume so full of good works, so full of good behavior, so full of rule following, such that Almighty God would look at the body of work of this guy's life and go, of course you get to come to heaven. I mean, that's one of ours. That's one of, that's, that's one of the good guys. Let's bring him up here into heaven. He did so well. Verse 26. So the expert wanted to justify himself. Verse 26. Jesus said to the expert, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, Jesus puts the question back to the expert. He says, you know what? You're, you know the writings of Moses. You know what the prophets had to say. You're the guy with all the degrees. So why don't you tell us how a person gets eternal life? And so the expert says, verse 27... He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That is, with all of your understanding. And then he adds to that as well, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, those are two separate statements that come from two different places in Scripture. The first comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. It's part of the Shema, which is a daily recitation that the Jewish people would have made in the morning and the evening. They would have said, you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And they would say that every day, in the morning and the evening, as part of their recitation. And so he's he's saying, hey, look, if you were to, and really what that does is it embodies the vertical relationship. So my relationship to my heavenly father, my my relationship with the God of the Bible, with my creator, um, that command encompasses what that relationship looks like. But then he adds to that another command that comes from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, where he says, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Um, And that encompasses like how we're supposed to treat one another so it's the horizontal part of life so with the two pulled together you think about moses has all those laws like 600 and some odd laws right by the way terry did a great job last week thank you so much for sharing while i was out riding around on the boat so i really appreciate that i really really do he did a great job and every sunday you can get more of that he teaches sunday school down here 9 30 sunday mornings come be a part of that um forget where i was Anyway, we're talking about the law. So there's all these laws. And if you were to pull all those together and kind of figure out, well, how do you sum that up? Um, You know, look at these two, the vertical relationship, the horizontal relationship. Love the Lord your God with all that stuff. And then love your neighbor as yourself, vertical and horizontal. Um, And so that's what this guy says. How do you get eternal life? Well, you do those two things. Um, Remember, again, this guy's, the question that's in front of Jesus before he gets to the parable about the Good Samaritan is how do you get eternal life? That's what he's answering. 
we, we make the Good Samaritan about being nice to our neighbor, that sort of thing. And we'll, that is part of it. We'll get to that. But the, the primary question that Jesus is answering is how do you get eternal life with the parable? So just kind of keep that in view. Um, so this guy thinks he can earn it. Jesus says, uh, uh, basically this guy's kind of full of himself, right? He, he doesn't see any fault in himself. He won't entertain the idea of there being a fault in himself. And so Jesus responds uh, with verse 28. He says to the expert, you have answered correctly. Do this, these two commands, do them, and you will live eternally. Remember, the question is about eternal life. Do these two things, and you'll have eternal life. Again, this guy's so full of himself, though, that he doesn't see any fault in himself. But when Jesus says, do these two things, and you'll live eternally, he's realizing that Jesus is setting the bar really high. I was just thinking more about the intent of my heart to do these things. Jesus, you're saying that I have to do these things perfectly. You're saying that I got to be spot on in loving God with all of my heart, with all of my mind, with all of my strength. You're saying I got to treat my neighbor as I would treat myself all the time, perfectly. Jesus, that bar just went way up here. I was thinking more about the good intention of my heart. And so this guy wants to pull the bar back down so that he can get over it, right? And so he says, hey, look, Jesus, let's bring that thing back down. Verse 29, who then is my neighbor? In other words, please qualify for me who exactly my neighbor is because I want to get the horizontal command right in every occasion. But let's bring that bar back down, something a little bit more achievable. So Jesus says, okay, you want to know who your neighbor is? Take a look at verse 30. I'll tell you. Verse, Jesus replies, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Um, I've got a map for you here, um, and this shows the Jericho Road. So um, Jerusalem is a point of high elevation in this region, and then Jericho is part of the Jordan River Valley, which is below sea level, quite a ways below sea level. So the drop in elevation from Jericho, I'm sorry, from Jerusalem down to Jericho is about almost 3,000 feet of elevation. Um, I've got a couple of pictures for you, and these show the steepness of the terrain. Some of the rocky cliffs they have to wind through on this Jericho Road um, shows some of the, uh, I guess, the, it's dry and arid area. I mean, this is desert-like area. Um, and so to move through this area was quite difficult. Um, verse 31, now by chance, a Jewish priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So Jesus is telling a make-believe story here. There's a guy, he's assaulted on this road. In fact, this road was so dangerous uh, back during Jesus' time that the Romans placed a garrison about halfway in the middle of this road because when you're going around those uh, chicanes uh, on your way on this road, it, it was made for good ambush sites, and so people were frequently uh, robbed. It was a very dangerous road. So Jesus is telling this story being a dangerous place, people would have been like, oh yeah, I've been down that road before. Uh, verse 31, now by chance a priest uh, was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Um, it's been suggested by some of the commentators that the Jewish priest was actually excused of his actions. Here's how they reason. They said that the Jewish priest was on his way to the temple, he was on his way to Jerusalem, and he looked over and he saw this bleeding, broken body probably not moving a whole lot or moving at all, maybe by their thoughts, moving by quickly. And they thought he was dead. And so if they had walked over and touched the corpse, 
they would have ritually contaminated themselves, which would require, I don't know, days, hours, I'm not sure how long, of sacrifice in order to ritually cleanse themselves, to be made pure, um, so they could begin serving at the temple. So this priest is on his way to the temple. When he gets to the temple, he's got to go through purification. But he's planning on when I get to the temple, I'll be able to start work right away. So he's excused then of not helping the guy because if they thought he was dead and if they had touched him, they'd contaminate themselves and they had to go through the whole process. Problem is, in Jesus' story, uh, Jesus says that the priest was traveling down. Right? 3,000 feet of elevation. You follow me? He's not, he's not going toward Jerusalem in Jesus' story. I know I'm straining at the little stuff here. But he's not going down. He's going down. He's heading away from Jerusalem. He's finished his job at the temple. He's heading back home. He's done. He's done his service. He's heading back home. This has nothing to do with contamination. Plus, it doesn't fit the context of the story. Jesus is making the point that this priest could have helped him, but he doesn't. So, we kind of leave that to the side. Verse 32, here's another one. Likewise, a Levite, another priest... When he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side as well. So two religious leaders, two pastors, put myself on the hot seat here. He does the same thing as the first guy, right? And he sees the man in need and ignores his problem. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed along this Jericho road, he came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on the man. Now, I got another map for you here. And the area in pink on this map shows the territory of Samaria. It sits between Galilee to the north and Judea to the south. This is around the time of Christ and the lead up to the time of Christ. So the Samaria gets its name from a city called Samaria. So the region gets its name. Um, what's unique about this area are the people who live there are part Jews and part other nationalities, part other ethnicities. Um, basically, I'm going back here a little bit in my date, but about 100 years before the time of Christ, the year 722 B.C., uh, the Assyrian Empire, the big geopolitical power, came into this area, attacked the northern half of Israel, the northern kingdom, and they extracted the Jews out of that area and resettled them in other places around the Assyrian Empire. This was how they operated um, when they were trying to conquer a particular people, particular area. They had left some of the Jews there, and then they brought other folks, outsiders, from other conquered lands and resettled them in this land of Samaria, in this region. Well, what happened is, you know, uh, little Johnny went to school with little Betty, and they met one another, and they grew up one, and then they fell in love. And Johnny was a little Jew, and Betty was a little... I don't know, Syrian girl or something like that. I don't know. And so they married one another. And so they intermarried over the course of generations. And so what you end up having in this, land, in this area of Samaria, unique in this region, are people who are part Jewish and part other ethnicities, part other nationalities, other backgrounds. And so what happened is the folks to the north, the, the, you know, the Jews that didn't intermarry, the folks to the south, the other Jews who didn't marry, they're kind of the thoroughbreds. And they look on all the folks that live in Samaria, and they have, look on them with scorn and with disdain. And uh, there was, they really didn't get along. Uh, the, the, again, the Jews thought very low of the Samaritans. The Samaritans knew that the Jews felt that way about them. And so they just really didn't want to have a whole lot to do with one another. Well, in Jesus' story, he picks as the heroine of his story somebody from this pink area, a, a, a Samaritan. Just hang on to that. It'll become important here in a little bit. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw the man broken, lying on the ground, he responded differently than the priest. He responded differently than the Levite. Says he had compassion on this mugged traveler. 
Verse 34. The Samaritan went to him and bound up his wounds and pouring on oil and wine. Oil and wine were an antiseptic that they used back then to treat uh, wounds. And he sent the man on his way on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of the man. Verse 35. The next day, Jesus' story, this fellow took out two denarii, about a day's wages, and he gave the money to the innkeeper and he said, take care of this stranger and whatever you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Um, I've created a slide for you here. This is actually the background of this slide is a painting by Rembrandt of the Good Samaritan. And it shows just a list of the actions in Jesus' story that the Samaritan takes. Let me just list them off for you. It says that he went to the fellow who was hurt. He bound up his wounds. He poured oil and wine on the wounds. That is, he ministered first aid. He set him on his donkey. He led the donkey through the winding, dangerous path until he got to town, to an inn. He took care of the man through the night. Think about that. All night long, the fellow needs a little drink of water. Some of his wounds are beginning to ooze, and he's taking care of that. He's keeping him cleaned up, changing out his bandages. Took care of him through the night. And then in the morning, he dug into his own pocket, and he paid for expenses that he had incurred and says to the innkeeper, hey, look, if there are charges beyond what I've given you, I'll be back tomorrow, and I will take care of all of the expenses um, incurred. Jesus then finishes his story, verse 36. He says to the expert, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, do you think, he's talking to the expert, do you think was the neighbor? The expert replies, verse 37, it was the Samaritan who showed him uh, mercy, who, who was his neighbor. It's not what he says, is it? He says it was, because the guy, the guy is a terrible racist. Just, just being honest here. That's what he is. He's a terrible racist. He won't even admit, even in a make-believe story, that there's anything good that could come out of Samaria, that there's anything good that a Samaritan could do. So instead of even saying the, the name Samaritan associated with good, he says, well, it was the one who showed mercy, who was his neighbor. Jesus then replies, um, you go and do likewise. All right, well, that is our parable for today. And so that means it's time for us to stop and ask our most important question, what difference does all this make to my life? Really great question. Um, let's see if we can, I heard that the question got asked last week, so, all right. Um, say not too, uh, very good. All right, so with this parable, or with this encounter, Jesus teaches two things. The first is, he teaches, and don't throw me out of the church, okay? Just hang on, after I say this statement, just don't get up and walk out, just hold on. Jesus teaches that you can earn eternal life. Hold on. No, nobody leave. That's what he teaches in this parable. However, here's the caveat. In order to do it, you have to do this, and you will live eternally. Jesus is talking about never making a mistake. I mean, loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with every piece of your understanding, everything from the beginning of life to the end. Perfection. And I know some of you are like, yeah, absolutely, no problem, I got that, I got that. Oh, but also, you have to treat other people the way you would want to be treated yourself. You have to love your neighbor as you love yourself. From the beginning of life, when you were two years old and playing in the sandbox, until the very end of life. In other words, you never offend God, you never follow, you never offend your fellow man, you never cheat you never steal, not even one little bit. You never take a stamp from the office at work. You never fudge about details on a story. You never curse. You never gossip. You never retaliate out on the ball field. 
You don't never lust after someone in your mind. You never disobey mom or dad. And if you can pull that off, Jesus says, verse 28, do this and you will live. Whew. Okay. I'm realizing there's a problem here. And the, and the experts realizing this too, as Jesus is responding to him, that I, I, can't, I can't do that. I mean, what you just presented was something totally implausible, something totally impossible. There's nobody in the history of the human race that could possibly do this. Perfection left the earth 2,000 years ago. Who could possibly pull this off? And that is the point. Paul puts it this way, Romans 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned. That includes, right, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that is, that is, that is the, the status, that is the depiction of, of human life, right? Try as we may, and we do try, and it's good to try. But at the end of the day, from birth to death, somewhere in the midst of all that, there's going to be some flaw, there's going to be some moment of sin, there's going to be some point at which we violate God's moral law. And so that's the point Jesus is making here. Friends, the first step toward inheriting eternal life, this is what this expert in law need to realize, is recognizing that we're not perfect and that we need the forgiveness of our Heavenly Father. That's the first step in inheriting eternal life, is realizing I got a sin problem. right? Not sitting there going, I want to justify myself. Tell me who my, who my neighbor is. Rather, it's saying, you know what, I haven't loved my neighbor all the time the way that I should. I haven't, with all of my heart, loved the Lord my God the way that I should. And so this expert, he wasn't willing to go there. Um, he wanted to curry favor with God. He wanted to be good enough. But friends, the point is that there is no good enough. We all fall short. So what's the solution? If it's impossible to be good enough, then how do we get eternal life? Jesus went on to say, John 3 and verse 16. Here's how in a nutshell. For God so loved the world, that is, he loved sinners like you and me, that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Jesus should not perish, but will have eternal life. That is how you get eternal life. You put your faith, you put your hope, you put your trust for eternity, not in your good works. Not in your achievements. Not in the body of work of your life. And saying, look God, look at all that I've done. Surely, there's, I'm one of the good ones. Surely you'll let me in. No, our appeal is to the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, plus nothing else. The Apostle John, with his, in his letter to the churches, his first letter to the churches, said, this, said it this way. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 11. And this is the testimony. That God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, the Lord Jesus. Verse 12. Whoever, listen to this, uh, unequivocal statement. Whoever has the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have eternal life. Friends, you cannot put it more plainly than that. Jesus is the solution to our admitted sin problem. We turn to the blood he shed on the cross. We repent of our sins to him. And when we do that, heaven becomes our eternal home. That's what the Bible just said. If you're here today 
you've never entered into a real and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I say this with all sincerity. If you have no relationship with Jesus Christ, if you've never appealed to him for the forgiveness of your sins, the Bible says you do not have eternal life. Life comes through Jesus. It comes through putting your faith and your trust in the work that he did on your behalf, not in our good works. Something for you to think about. That's point number one of this parable. To show the expert that he has a need to repent. Uh, point number two, the other major point of this parable, is to invite us as believers to live lives of compassion. To live lives of compassion. Notice, notice the response of the Samaritan, Luke chapter 10 and verse 33. It says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the mugged traveler was. He saw him, and he had what? He had compassion on him. This is one of the points that Jesus is trying to communicate. Not just to answer the question, the primary question that was, that was raised about eternal life, but also to teach about how we're supposed to treat one another, what God's looking for, and our response toward the needs of others around us in the world. Um, friends, this command to treat our neighbor as ourselves is something we do. Because the Spirit of God living inside of us as believers is provoking us to have a compassionate response. To live this way when it comes to uh, those that have needs around us. Jesus is saying that the kind of heart that he is looking for is the kind of heart that this Samaritan, an unlikely, right? An unlikely person to have a heart like this. That this is the kind of heart that God is looking for in you and in me. A heart filled with compassion. And friends, this is more than just pity. This is more than just an emotion. This is mercy that results in practical help for people. I mean, look at what this act of compassion cost the Samaritan. It cost him his time. It cost him a day's wages. It took him perhaps well out of his way. Who knows what this guy was off to go do or what kind of business he had to attend to. But he just put the brakes on what he had going on and said, you know what, here's somebody with like serious human need Nobody else is around here helping him out. I'm going to be. I'm going to step in the gap. I'm going to be the guy. And so he walked with him, took him to the end, spent the night there with him, helped him out, gave him the resources that he needed to be able to recover. Um, friends, there are broken down people lying all around Jericho roads in our lives. People like that everywhere. We run into them all over the place. Someone uh, that needs somebody else to come alongside them and help them get back on their feet, someone that needs someone to come alongside them and pray with them when they have a need, someone that is um, looking for, you know, just needs somebody to get up underneath the weight of the burden that they're under that's just crushing them, somebody to come alongside and love them through those times. First John chapter 3 and verse 18, John puts it this way. He says, let us not love in word or talk. I mean, it's one thing to talk about people that have needs. He said, but let's also love in deed and in action. True compassion, friends, it will cost us something. It costs the Samaritan. It'll cost us something as well. I'd like to share in closing, this is somewhat of a lengthy story. I know I'm running short on time, but just, just hang in there with me, okay? This is sort of a lengthy story. It's a story from the life of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a famed missionary to uh, China in the late eight, through the 1800s, uh, the early 1900s. Uh, this comes from his book, Spiritual Secrets. This is a story that he writes, and so let me share this with you. 
Uh, Hudson Taylor writes, One day, as the time drew near for the payment of a quarter of my salary, it was much, I was much in prayer about it. As the time drew near, my boss made no allusion to the matter that he owed me some money, and I continued praying, and days passed, and he continued not to remember. Until at length, upon settling up my weekly accounts one Saturday night, I found myself possessed with only one remaining coin, a half crown. It's about a dollar back in the 1800s. On the following day, I had a very happy Sunday. My heart was full, brimming over with blessing. After attending an inspired service in the morning, my afternoon and evening were taken up with gospel work. After concluding my last service at about 10 o'clock at night, a poor man asked me, would you please come and pray with my wife? He had heard, uh, had met Hudson Taylor out on the streets as he was doing his gospel ministry and asked him, would you please come back to my home? My wife is dying. I asked him along the way why he had not asked for a priest to come because I could tell from his accent that he was Irish and I almost certainly felt that he was Catholic. He said that as he had done so, but the priest had refused to come without the payment in advance of 18 pence, which the man did not possess because he, was, he and his family were starving. Immediately it occurred to my mind that all the money that I had in the world was that one solitary half crown, that one big old coin in his pocket. How, moreover, while I had food for supper awaiting me at home, and there was sufficient for breakfast in the morning, I had nothing more in the cupboard for dinner the coming day. Somehow or other, there was a stoppage of the flow of joy in my heart at once. But instead of reproving myself, I began to reprove the poor man, telling him that it was very wrong of him to allow himself to get into this position that he had, should have gone and appealed for help or for relief. He answered that he had done so, and he was told to come back the next morning, but he was fearful that he had left his wife, that she was going to die, and he didn't want to leave her side. I thought if I had only two shillings and a sixpence. So in other words, what he's hoping is that his little half crown was broken down into smaller denominations. So he could keep a little bit for himself, and then he could give this rest or some of it to this little poor man. He says, um, I would give him a shilling. So if I, I wish my half crown was broken down into smaller denominations, I'd give him one shilling. Uh, but to part with my half crown, that was far from my mind. And I was not prepared to trust God alone without any money in my pocket. My conductor led me into a court up a flight of steps and into a little room, and oh, what a sight there was. Four little children sitting around with their eyes and cheeks sunken, telling the story of starvation. Lying on a wretched pallet was the mother, poor and exhausted, with a tiny infant just 36 hours old. The infant was moaning rather than crying at her side. I thought... If only I had two shillings and a sixpence. So he's hoping for those smaller denominations of his half crown, right? How gladly I would give them one and sixpence. So he's going up in what he's, what he's thinking he might give to this guy. But still the wretched unbelief prevented me from obeying the impulse I had to relieve their suffering. I would scarcely seem strange that I was able to offer any comfort to these poor people. I needed comfort myself. I began to tell them they must not be cast down. That though their circumstances were very distressing, that there was a kind and loving Heavenly Father... But something inside me kept crying out, you hypocrite, telling these people about a kind and loving Heavenly Father and not prepared to trust Him with a half crown yourself? I nearly choked. How bad would I have compromised with my conscience and given them the two shillings and kept the sixpence for myself? So again, he's going up, right? If only I had broken, uh, if only I had, was able to break it. So he's, uh, so he's going up again. To talk was impossible under these circumstances, yet strange to say, I thought I could pray because it seemed like prayer was something I could do. And so I prayed, but no sooner had I opened my lips and prayed, Oh, uh, Father who art in heaven, 
that my conscience said to me, dare you mock God? Dare you kneel down and call him uh, father while that half crown is in your pocket? Such a time of conflict came upon me such that I had never experienced before. Kind of tender. Dropped off one of my daughters yesterday. So at that point in the story, uh, I'm a little compromised. I'll try to hold it together. How I got through that prayer, I will never know. And whether the words I uttered were connected or disconnected, I do not know. But I rose from my knees in great distress of mind, and he said to me, You see what a terrible state we are in, sir. If you can help us, for God's sake, do so. And at that moment, the word flashed into my mind, Give to him that asks of thee. So I put my hand in my pocket and slowly drew out that half crown, and I gave it. I gave it to the man. How the joy came back into my heart. I could feel that the hindrance of God's blessing was gone. And not only was the poor man's life, poor woman's life saved, but I realized that my life was saved that night as well. I went home that night with my heart as light as my pockets. <laughs> the next morning I was eating my breakfast. The postman came to the door, almost finished here. And he handed me a letter, and I was not used to receiving letters. On Monday, I could not make out the handwriting. It was either a strange hand or a feigned one, but the postmark itself was blurred. Upon opening the envelope, I found nothing inside, just a blank sheet of paper. As I opened the paper, a half sovereign fell out onto the ground, which is about $4. And he said, I, said, I exclaimed out loud, praise the Lord, 400% in 12 hours. <laughs> and there and then I would determine that a bank that could never break would have my savings. For the rest of my life. Friends, that is the heart that Jesus wants for us to have. Here's my challenge to you this week, and I'll close with this. I would be willing to go out on a limb and say that God is going to put someone with a need in front of us this week. Someone who's broken down on the Jericho Road of life and may have a flat tire. They may run out of gas. They may just be in a difficult spot. Maybe they have physical needs. Maybe they have emotional needs. But somebody in our path, maybe it's one of the kids in your school who just needs somebody to come alongside them. They're just being crushed by what life's throwing at them. And uh, God's going to give us a chance, friends, to be a good Samaritan. If we ask God, God, you know what, my heart's grown kind of cold, kind of like that expert. I'm, I'm trying to pr produce a body of work in my life that I'm hoping, Lord, you're happy with. Friends, God doesn't, he wants us to come to him with our hands empty and our pockets turned out, right? That, that's the picture that God wants us to show up in heaven, to say, you know, I'm here trusting in, hoping in, putting my faith in. What Jesus did on the cross for me, plus nothing else. And I'm walking through the whole of life between now and that moment of eternity. The same way. Jesus, you're my all. You're my sufficiency. Friends, when we ask God to tenderize our heart that way, he will bring people along our path. And we will be able to show compassion to them. And it will not only save them, but it will save us as well. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, thank you for speaking to us today from your word. Lord Jesus, you truly are the master teacher.
You answer the questions we have. You raise and answer questions we didn't even know we needed to ask. And yet, Lord, it cuts right to the heart of where we're living. It cuts right to the heart of the need of our life. Lord, we give you this time of communion. We ask, Lord Jesus, as we share together these emblems, these symbols of your broken body and of your shed blood. Your Holy Spirit would stir in our heart, guide us, direct us. Lord, may we, in the coming week, say, yes, Lord, to where the need arises as we're heading down the road of life. Lord, we give you our lives. We ask that you would use them for your good and your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.